Welcome to season two of the ISC podcast. My name is Genevieve Stowe, and throughout this series, I will talk with industry leaders about their career journeys and what they've learned along the way. It won't just be me doing the interviewing though, there'll be cameos from the ISC team and even some ISC members too. Some of these episodes have been pre-recorded with a live audience. Therefore, some of the questions you hear will have come from ISC members themselves, and we request your patience with any technical issues we might have had. This episode was recorded in June 2021, where I had the opportunity to speak with Jill Francis. Jill, thanks to her nearly 20 years experience working in tech within the insurance industry, had some great insight when it came to making internal change and stress the need for internal alignment. Jill and I also touched on something that she feels incredibly passionate about, which is the price that women pay in order to be successful in their careers. Thank you so much to Jill for giving up the time to share her expertise. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Uh, I'm pleased to say it's a beautiful sunny day in London, which is rare at the moment. So I'm very happily uh, speaking to you all from the bottom of my garden and I'm looking out on a nice sunny sky and I'm thrilled to be joined by Jill who is actually in Derry in Northern Ireland. So we're coming from different places um, and I think we're also going to have a pretty global audience as well Jill thanks to your your US roots. With that I'm going to pass over to you Jill to do your introduction and then and then we'll get going on the questions. Thanks Genevieve. And hello everyone, and it's really my pleasure to be here today. Jill Francis, I'm currently serving as active underwriter of Victor Syndicate 2288 here in London or generally in London, and um, also serve as the chief underwriting and operating officer of Victor International. So I know we're gonna get into more of my background, so I'll save some of the rest for, um, for your questions. Perfect. So you have said that the role you have currently is your dream job, and I'm sure there's been a, well, I know there's been a whole, load of bumps and things that you've overcome along the way in your career journey so what are the pivotal steps and also missteps which have led you to this point yeah thanks um you know i guess when i think a dream job too it, it comes in a couple of, of i think perspectives of one just being lloyds of london i think you know as a, a and i will just say you know my career has been very varied and um I didn't even know what Lloyd's was probably for the first 10 years of my career. So I started out as in a direct writer insurance company in Wisconsin. And, you know, for those that don't know direct writer, you, you, it would be like what we call in the Europe, a tide agent. You only work for the company or represent the company that you're employed with. So you don't really have access to what the brokerage world or Lloyd's would be. And so it's quite, you know, I, I guess parochial, I would call it. And you're kind of in this little bubble and you just kind of interact with that company. So when I moved to Chicago and I always call that my baptism into the real world of insurance, you start dealing with maybe DNO, ENO, some of the harder to place um, type coverages. And that's when I knew about what Lloyd's was. And I always had this idea that someday I wanted to work there. And once I understood like it was really the birthplace of insurance, it really gives it that historical perspective too about how insurance even came about. And it was, you know, about ensuring the, the ships and the cargo and all the things and about why there's a three-year accounting cycle. I mean, those are all things that unless you're tied into the Lloyd's world, you don't really know. So that was sort of the, this kind of North star I've always had about, you know, wanting to someday work in, in the London environment. 
And then two would just be the international, you know, more than a study abroad that you would do in college. This would be the working abroad in our insurance and, and a corporate and professional life. And, and so for me, this is, this is it. Um, I've had a lot of different roles, you know, moving to Chicago. I worked a couple years in Manhattan, um, five years in DC with Victor. So I've had some exposure and moving around within the US, but this is the first international. So that makes it sort of the ticking the boxes from a professional side and a personal, you know, sort of bucket list kind of thing. Mm. So do you think that moving around in the States helped kind of prepare you to move over to the UK? It definitely did. And I think, you know, sometimes I talk a little bit about the price you pay or, and I'd like to even think about it because that kind of sounds negative that, you know, like, but it, it really, there is a price of change and I call it sort of an emotional price, right? Not a lot of people, um, and I think this is really kind of getting outside your comfort zone of, am I ready to move away from my family? And that, you know, kind of our nucleus of a family that says, you know, there's, there's challenges of coming home for holidays or if you're raising children. Um, my kids moved schools many times for some of the decisions I made professionally. So when I think about, you know, those decisions you make or the risks you take of whether it's with the same company or even a different company of, you know, do you, are you going to like that community? Are you going to like that new position or that the culture of the new company? There's a lot of uncertainty. And so you have to like change. I happen to thrive on change. I like to promote change. And so I'm a change agent. And so I think for me, um, it, it was natural that I would, you know, welcome moving to a new city, taking on a new role, um, you know, trying to be part of a new culture or influencing a new culture um, that I'm part of. So yeah, for me, it, it came kind of natural, but I'm not sure that that's for everyone. And I think that when you think about steps that you take to get there or maybe missteps, some of those along the way weren't really guided toward my North Star. They were more out of necessity of family demands or, and in this case, or a several, um, you know, maybe just misalignment of my view of my value or my worth, or was I being treated at least the way that I thought I should be in a certain role or within a certain um, area. So, you know, I think it, 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 you know, it's different for everyone. Mm, yeah. I think another thing about your career, which is very interesting, and I think will resonate with a lot of people is you've taken a couple of different breaks from the industry. I think it's, was it three? Uh, two. Two. <laughs> yep. So, what I'd like to ask is, is how you navigated taking those breaks and coming back and really powering forward with your career. Because I know that for a lot of people, there's a slight confidence issue if you take a break and then you return. But then there's also the fear that you're not going to get put forward for that next role. You, you've shown that taking a break hasn't held you back in any way. And I was just wondering, what advice do you have for other women who are considering yeah. taking a break? Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. That's a good question. because. At the time that I was taking those breaks, I'm not sure I was, I mean, I somewhere I must have certainly put a lot of thought to it, but now looking back, um, I think the first time I took, it was about a five month break and it was necessary for me because I think I needed to just get my head in the right place to say, am I living the way I wanna live? Am I living where I wanna live? Do I have the role I wanna like? And there was a lot of family influence in that as well. So I think when we think about work-life balance, when things get out of balance, whether it's the work side, the family side, or sometimes both, it's kind of important to step back and just take inventory. And I also realized I was quite privileged 
that I could afford to take that break. So I was at a point in my life where, but look, I was living in Manhattan. The, the, the rent was not cheap, um, but it was important for me to take that break and really take that self-assessment of professionally, where do I want to be? Where is my passion? And I've always tried to kind of round out what are my skills to what is my passion? And I mean, really, you know, creating that that space where I feel valued, where I feel like I'm contributing. And so that first break was, I think, really important. I took, I took a road trip. I thought, I've never lived on the East Coast before. I've always wanted to live somewhere coastally. So what do I know about the East Coast? So I decided to take a road trip. And each step of the way, I just kind of did some self-reflection, you know, learned a lot to say, do I want to stay? At that point, I was probably 20 years in the industry. Do I want to stay in the industry? Is there another career that's calling me? And so it was a real pivotal point, but I think to your point, then the re-entry of you know, the confidence, I think I had some skill sets that were in demand. So I was heavily invested in the technology, techie, you know, cyber. Um, you know, it was at a point in the mid-2000s where you know, there was a lot of people, there were people looking for that skill set. And so um, I was approached by a recruiter and um, I kind of you know, bristled a little bit at the opportunity saying, well, you know, and I kind of thought, well, I don't really know if that's what I want. And through, but by, by not turning that away though, and staying open to listening, I just said, well, you know, and I remember she said, what's the harm if you got on a train? Where, what are you going to do next Thursday anyway? I love the way she did this. And she said, what's the harm if you just got on a train, came in and just talked to us? Mm-hmm. And it cha- that entirely changed, you know, my whole view of the opportunity. So I think the important thing is to stay open, be honest with yourself about your why. Why are you doing what you're doing or what, what is it you're looking for and making sure, I always call it like the Shakespeare of to thine own self be true. Are you staying true to yourself and your kind of own North Star? And that helped me kind of, you know, um, make that assessment. I think the second time was, uh, uh, and that was a, a bit more recently, I think that one was really more around frustration from kind of hitting that glass ceiling and just saying, you know, after that, as much time that I spent in the industry, I was a bit tired of how hard do we have to push the path of getting toward gender equality. And and I was pretty exhausted from some of the experiences that I've had about just watching different things happen and or I guess I'll call it even a price you pay for speaking up or speaking out is that not all organizations want to hear that, you know, gender equality is not necessarily, or, and it's not necessarily always the organization, especially the larger the organization, the harder it is for them to really have a lens on, you know, micro issues, right? So it might be one person or one team or one issue. And so there was just a lot of that where I just thought, I'm kind of done. Like I need to, you know, like, is this really for me? And so I was in a position for the first time in my life that I only had, you know, I didn't have a spouse. My kids were all grown. I didn't have financial commitments to anyone but myself. And so it was the perfect time to take risk and say, I think I need a break of, I pursued my master's degree, found a great, and it was in organizational leadership. So it was the people side, not the finance side of the business, which I tend to gravitate toward the leadership side of things of how do we help more women get into those roles. So I wanted to just kind of, you know, get when I think of mastering that, you know, that art of leadership. And so it really attracted me and it was online, but it had great study abroad. So I spent a month in Florence. 
I spent, you know, two weeks up in the hills of Italy in cultural immersion, learning communication styles with, you know, someone um, that you never met before and things like that. So it really, and that's how I ended up in Derry in Northern Ireland in my last elective of taking peace building through dialogue. And that really kind of struck a chord with me. So I thought, kind of feel like I owe it to myself to see where this goes before I decide I should go back to insurance. But while I was here studying conflict resolution and learning about the other, when I think about, you know, men and women being kind of divided and a bit like a sectarian society and having conflict and trying to figure out that resolution and saying, if women like me keep opting out of the process to when we don't get to those senior roles, how is it ever going to change? If We yeah. keep taking our ball and going home, right? So that's when I just decided that I felt like I've invested so much time in my own career, but also with helping mentor, you know, younger women and kind of keeping that path going in the conversation of change. Um, if, if, if I don't come back and help, like, am I, what do I want my legacy to be? So, but what I did was came back with a different mindset. And I think that was the key for me was it was a different goal with a different mindset saying, I think I can contribute to this to change differently rather than trying to power forward. It's really influencing one person, one role, one meeting, one conversation at a time. And that was what changed for me. So, um, but I think to your point of the confidence to come back or the re-entry, um, I do think it is about really, again, just challenging yourself on the why, but also finding the right organization. And that's where I, I just feel really, um, you know, grateful that um, Victor has just been a great, was a great landing spot. And I've been able to do great things in the last six and a half years since I've been there. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it's really nice you talking about the other angle of, of how you kind of re-navigated your frustration and put it into a different sphere in order to make the most of it. Because I think we, there is a bit of a, there's much more of a conversation, I think, about lack of confidence as a reason why not to return, but less so about the frustration that women feel when they work in the industry. Exactly. Um, we had, I think this will slot in quite nicely here. We had a, a question coming from Chantal Cooper um, in advance, actually, which, um, which was, if you could give any advice to a young female in this industry wishing to succeed in their career, but nervous about how people may try to stop them from doing so because of their gender, what would it be? Yeah, that's, um, well, I, I do have a lot of years of experience in that one. So I, can, I feel like I can part it. And I would just say, ask for what you want. I think oftentimes we think, and I certainly I'm guilty of this. So this is why I think, it, you know, I would impart this is that I, if I had maybe learned this art earlier of being okay with asking as opposed to thinking someone will, you know, notice me because I work hard, that I get, you know, I, I you know, have good work ethic, I show up, I, I produce results, that's not enough. It really is about being vocal about what you want. So making sure you ask for it and also not accepting no for an answer. Mm -hmm. So if, and that, that would be why when you see some of the changes I made, if you're not getting rewarded or feeling rewarded where you are, and that's not to say that I'm encouraging people to jump ships of their roles, but making sure you're pushing your agenda personally for you as much as you can, where you can, with who you can. Mm -hmm. And that, but if it's not there, then don't settle for it either, because I think that's how we get, and this isn't just women that experiences. I think then we get 
you, you feel like you settle for something that you're compromised and that you have no choice. And we mm -hmm. always have a choice. And so for me, I would just say, don't take no for an answer and, you know, make sure you ask for what you want. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that's something that we can all be, be guilty of sometimes. It's, e it's almost easier to say, oh, I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll notice. I'm sure they'll see eventually all the hard work I've been doing rather than putting yourself on the line and, and saying, no, actually, this is what I deserve. Yeah, we're not very good at kind of blowing our own horn, right? And and really kind of showcasing it. And I, I just, I think that is a gender difference is that men do tend to have a, a better handle. Maybe they're, you know, maybe it comes from the, maybe the way we're raised or, how, you know, just different ways that we're expectations about, we see it as, you know, I, I know certainly I was taught is, you know, that it was, it was even considered vanity to talk positively about yourself or, you know, so it, I think it has all kinds of different cultural differences of our comfort level of, um, you know, really, you know, have leading with confidence. And I think that's really hard for us to do that. So I think if the one thing to work on is, you know, honing that skill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're actually going to move on now and talk a little bit more about uh, the business that you work in, so specifically tech and innovation. So if anyone has any other questions about Jill's kind of career background or journey, please do send them in. We can slot them in now. If not, I'm going to carry on with my next question, which is how has the tech and innovation space changed and developed over the past 20 years? You know, 20, 20 years sounds like a long time. And then sometimes when you think, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the, at the millennia, think about Y2K, right? Everyone thought this guy was going to fall. And, you know, when you think about it, or even just late 90s, say, with the whole tech boom, right? We had the dot-com explosion. It was actually a really fun time to embrace technology. So I was very fortunate. I was working for... Um, on the broker side at the time, and I was a producer. So my sales manager, you know, kind of forced us into industry specialization and no one wanted tech because everyone was afraid of it. There was so much going on. And I said, all right, I'll take it. Um, I was one of the only females. They wanted transportation and, you know, I, I didn't want to do rails and healthcare. I had seen enough nursing homes as an underwriter uh, to not want to do healthcare, but really kind of looking at, I was gravitating toward emerging things. And so when you look at cyber was new and so from that standpoint, I think the insurance side of it, think about the conversations we're still having on cyber 20 years later. I'm not sure we figured it out, but the risks keep evolving too. You know, we used to think virus was going to be the thing that that really kind of drove it. Well, now the virus is really ransomware. And so it still is, but we're still learning about how to approach the risks, how to really, you know, manage the insurance. So I think that side of it is, um, and it's only going to keep you know, the complexity of risk is just going to keep changing. You look at the internet of things, nothing we touch today isn't connected wirelessly, right? So smart homes, smartphones, smart everything, uh, smart roads, smart cars, right? So everything has an internet of things that um, we're connected. So I think, and, and now you look at AI, right? So when we think yeah. about how we've been able to take you know, it used to be that your auto and home insurance was the easy one that you could take online because it was pretty homogeneous and there wasn't a lot of departure other than where do you live, how old are you, you know, how long, how far do you drive. Now we're able to take things so like what we worked at at Victor was you know, taking a specialty line like E&O and being able to take a complex line of underwriting and being able to put that into a algorithms of, of underwriting and just, you know, decision trees and things like that. So to me, that's, that's really exciting of where we're going. 
And I think that the thing to remember, and especially like the, the teams I've talked to is we're not looking to replace underwriters. We're actually looking to enhance the experience of the broker and actually increase the business we do. But underwriters, knowledge and complexity will always be part of what's needed, right? We're just going to use it in a different way. So I kind of call it upskilling or kind of changing the role of an underwriter to more of a technical salesperson, yeah. right? That can talk about the coverages or right in a, in a more complex risk versus yeah. the sort of the, you know, the everyday ones. And so I think from that standpoint, I just look at how, you know, when I think about 20 years ago, when we talked about going paperless, everyone thought the sky was going to fall, right? And now we couldn't imagine if somebody saddled us with files. <laughs> so I think, you know, those are the, to me, the positive things. I do think human nature, though, when we think about obstacles to adopting technology or adapting and moving on is that, you know, humans are, we love routine, we like ritual. So people get unsettled when you ask them to get outside their comfort zone mm -hmm. and work in a different way or think a different way. So that kind of is where that change mindset, I think, has to come in is that we have to, you know, kind of be curious enough to want to move with where it's going. And some people you have to drag along and others are ready to charge and leave the, the front. So uh, I think it's a bit of both, but it's either way, it's exciting, whether it's on the product side or within our operational side of how we underwrite and deliver product. Mm. And you mentioned the, uh, the obstacle, which is exists within kind of human nature to change, but are there any other similar obstacles which have existed right since the start of the kind of um, introduction of tech into the industry that you still see now? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think it's speed to market and or like the speed of which technology builds. I've been on project teams where you sit in a room for months, you plan it all out. It takes then the IT team to take months, you know, and you get to this two year project and it doesn't work or or you've got, you know, lots of hiccups along the way or so I think there is technology fatigue, change fatigue where if you introduce too much too soon, or if you introduce something that doesn't work or the skepticism, I think then you get this umbrella of, don't make me do all this if it's not gonna enhance my job, right? So I think there's some of that where um, we shouldn't be thinking about technology for the sake of technology. It should be, for, did, is it really going to you know, deliver the impact we believe it's going to? Because that's how you're gonna win people over. And I think we've had certainly had a, enough you know, as an industry had a lot of missteps, right, mm -hmm. of failed, and I will I'll call it failed technology, whether it was either failed vision, failed build, or failed execution, and it could be, you know, any one of those, but um, I think that's really where we've, we've gotten better, um, because the, it's, you know, if, if you don't, you're going to get left behind, so I think from that standpoint, but we still have a long way to go, um, but I do think, you know, you look at how much we're being able to connect with each other, even outside of different organizations through APIs and a lot of, you know, open technology mm. versus our old legacy systems. I think that's the big difference that's um, encouraging and, you know, likely to get us that to that next level. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that, um, so I, often the conversations that I have with people around adoption of tech and innovation they say that they get frustrated by the internal barriers within their own corporations and management teams not being ready or not understanding the benefits of the change. 
is that something that you see as well? Obviously, it's slightly different for you given the role that you hold. But well, I, I, and again, I think I, I, I'm in a unique position, and/or I think our company is unique in that our IT team and the business team are all a team. Generally, I, I think where it breaks down is when you've got. A, the business side pushing for something in IT, either it's a budgetary constraint or it's a knowledge constraint, or you know, do they have the tech? Do they have the um, the ability, capabilities in house or outsourcing? So I think there's a lot of that. But what I've seen where it's most successful is when IT and business are aligned, and it's sponsored by senior leadership overall. That that that's the driving force behind getting those two groups to work together to deliver what. What the vision was. I think the internal barriers end up with when you one of those is the blocker, the business or the IT side or senior leadership, right? Somebody's not, they're not all on the same page as to, I think it goes back to the why, believing of what that technology is going to deliver for the for the organization. Yeah. Um, so do you think that there needs to be a slight uh, a, a larger focus on kind of change management and encouraging senior leaders and people generally to be more ready to accept and adapt to change. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder about, you know, because we've had this explosion of insure tech companies, right? So now there's tons of money going into the insure techs and they're building some great platforms, but they're not necessarily aligned with the, with some, you know, the, like they don't have the insurance expertise, they have the IT. And so I think there's some things missing there that says we shouldn't assume that we're going to outsource this to someone else. It has to be part of and embedded within our industry driving that the need versus what some tech company thinks we need and then try to sell it back to us. That's what I've been seeing a lot of. And I'm shocked at like the millions of dollars getting invested into some of the insure techs that they can stand on their own, but not as a as a sustainable you know platform and or without the insurance influence. So it's kind of like you built you built it, but you kind of forgot to ask the owners how they want to use it. Um, so it, we're, it's slick technology on an operational side, but not on an ongoing. So I do think the change management side around this is that it has to be more of a combined vision going forward of whether it's a specific line of business, a specific geography um, within an industry sector, but there should be much more collaboration that takes place as opposed to all these individual pieces and somebody trying to fit it together afterwards after it's you know almost baked yeah absolutely you've got to have everyone on board from the get-go oh, right. it's going to be a challenge um i'd like to now talk a little bit more about something that you mentioned earlier which is in relation to uh gender diversity and the dynamics that exist within the industry mm -hmm. and as i said you touched on it earlier the price that women pay and do you think the women do pay a price for success? And do you think that this is a different experience to men? Yeah, so there is. And I, I think, well, I th a couple of things, right? I think, first of all, we're, we're still trying to find what gender equity looks like. If we said, is, is it 50-50? Is it, you know, from that standpoint, I, I, I struggle a little bit with what that even means, right? When we talk about, so whether it's balance, but I do think women, especially if you're, and I sometimes call it the motherhood penalty, but, um, and it shouldn't be, right? I mean, by nature, women are, are the ones that bear the children, but we also though bear more of their, their care 
Um, men are much more involved than they were. Certainly when I was in the 80s trying to, and we had Working Mother magazine, you know, for the first, we didn't have the internet, right? So we were relying on all these new things coming into the workplace. I, I think my husband was one of the first people to be a, a stay-at-home dad, and it was not very popular, and the male ego didn't do very well with that in the 80s. And especially when you're surrounded by a lot of professional men who then sometimes have judgment to say, you got a college degree and you take care of your kids. And they would even call it babysitting their kids, their own children, they would call babysitting, right? So we've come a long way. Um, but I do think, you know, so the whole notion of, I, I would call it, you know, parenthood, because more men are absolutely wanting to be part of their, their kids' lives. And they want the same flexibility that women want from the work world. But I, so I think we're, we should be pushing for more parenthood flexibility um, so that it isn't viewed as just a women's issue that of, of childcare, right? Is that there is a male in that role. And, and some, but in my case, and then if you do become a single parent, it becomes equally more hard, right? Because now it's solely on you to manage your career and your, and your childcare. Um, so hopefully, you know, people have good co-parenting with an ex or they have a strong support system. And I would say that, that, that to me is the harder part of the price we pay is mm -hmm. we struggle more. I, I look at a lot of men that would go on a business trip, come home, and they don't have the same demands that I would have when I come home from the trip to say, I'm still the one to get them to the dentist or gymnastics or whatever that is that, um, oftentimes, and it's, it depends on how you set up your household, right? Yeah. Do you have a supportive enough spouse? Do you share that whole equality? I think the at-home equality is as important as the at-home or at-work equality of how you're viewed and treated once you're in the workplace after you've left home. So I think there, um, those differences are starting to get, the lines are getting more blurred, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I worry a little bit of post-COVID that, you know, some of the flexibility we've been enjoying and I think others have you know, do we need a rush back to the way it was before? Is there really a need to be in the office as much as we were on FaceTime viewed as that's the way you get ahead? Mm -hmm. um, so I do worry a little bit about that of um, some of that, you know, the differences there. Um, and let's, you know, hope that this doesn't set, you know, us back as women that um, that flexibility is going to be viewed as a negative because yeah. it really should be available to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's you've got to hope that the balance between um people maybe wanting to take up the flexibility slightly and not be doing their face-to-face -face in the office thing and maybe a slight lack of well reduced visibility is outweighed by the last year and employers being able to witness what people's home lives are like and having a new newfound appreciation and understanding that uh all the different aspects that people are juggling that we shall have to see. Yeah, um, I hope that we've been able to demonstrate through this time though too that we do have the ability to do both right we can we can perform and 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 really you know um, contribute just as strongly if we're if we are at home and you know in the past I know that you know there used to be skepticism about what were people do on their work from home days well now now we kind of know we all worked from home and you actually can be very productive and sometimes even more productive. So I hope that that, you know, that mindset stays with us um, across, you know, and, and really for all genders, though, for both, you know, because I do think everyone would like that flexibility to work into their daily lives. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the last year has been very good for busting those productivity myths. Right. Um, is there a, a way of becoming a successful leader without making the sacrifices that you've just mentioned? Well, I mean, I think we all have to decide kind of that, that price. I mean, for me at the time that I made them, they seemed like the right thing to do. So I, I would say though, I'm, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't willing to move away. So I grew up in Wisconsin. So no, I would not be an active underwriter in London, likely. I wouldn't have gained the experiences I have. Um, I, I wouldn't have had the same opportunities. So I don't think now, could I have become you know, a senior leader in a small mutual company? Sure. Do I think I would be as pro professionally fulfilled? And I think that's where the personal side of what your goals are. For me, bigger cities, bigger organizations, more challenging risks for me, that was important. So I suppose you could say, um, but even with, and I, you have to decide what that, is it a price to pay? A moving away or, you know, going within uh, a smaller company versus, you know, do you want to be a bigger fish in a small pond? I always, that's the, what I used to ask my question, or is it better to be, you know, a small fish in a big pond? And they each have their own advantages. And I, I would say, I think you can have success, but I do think there's always a price you're going to pay for the choices you make along the way. And from my, from my standpoint, I don't have regrets on any of them. It's just kind of now looking back and saying, and, and, and acknowledging that there is a price. You know, knowing I missed some of the things with my kids, um, knowing I've definitely screwed up on, you know, a few like scheduling things of, you know, I, I put work before a, a child or, you know, things I wish I could go back and do over, but I don't regret, you know, any of those moves. It's, it is, I, I stand by the decision and I own it. Um, so another aspect that's always, well, I think is always worth considering when you're talking about diversity in, in relation to, to gender is the role that stereotyping plays in preventing women from reaching their leadership potentials. Do you think that that's still a factor? You know, it's a great question. I, I struggle with them on a bit to say, yeah, I, I do think, you know, if you think about it, well, you think about it, women have been fighting for equality for a long time. It's not with even within our generation, right? So when you think about the right to vote 100 years ago or what, so I do think men are probably tired of hearing of us pushing for equality. That said, we're not going to stop. So this is where I kind of get to defining, will we know when we got there? What is it, right? So we've made progress and we continue to make progress. So I do think, but the stereotypes, it's funny. I, someone asked me a question about why do I think the insurance industry is so male dominated? And I really couldn't answer the question. So I Googled it, you know, I'm thinking who knows, but Google. Um, and it was funny that it came out and it was through um, Investopedia. So it was kind of like a wiki kind of thing, right? Um, and it basically said that there is a pervasive stereotype that women are not willing to work the long hours, that we need um, you know, intermittent breaks from our careers because of children, and that we can't handle stress like men can. And that was their answer. And I thought, well, okay, at least they're being honest. And if that is the perception or stereotype that we have, I've heard different stereotypes that we're too emotional, um, that we, you know, we, we are too emotional to make important decisions or to handle stress. Um, and look, I'll be the first time, I'm an emotional person. I've cried at work. Um, and I, you know, I can remember in my younger days, I was highly embarrassed. Now I just say I'm human, right? So we have to say like, we are probably more emotional. 
because we're taught that way from young. I raised three boys and I've had to apologize to them that I didn't really teach them to necessarily deal with their emotions well. You know, boys are taught to suppress it, stop crying. You know, we don't cry. Like, so I do think we've kind of done that to ourselves and we, this is where we are. Um, so I do think that, you know, the stereotyping, we stereotype men, they're not all the same, right? So I think from that standpoint, I would love to, for us to find a new narrative of how we talk about equality, what that means, it means something different for every person. It might mean something different for that particular role. One of the things I do think though, and you know, we always say like, we wanna level the playing field. And I, I bristle a little bit at that because we didn't create the playing field. We showed up at the game and we weren't exactly invited on the team. So, and I say that from years ago, I think now we are invited, I'm on the team. Um, so I think we have an incredible advantage right now to contribute to the rules of engagement. And I think what we're doing now is trying to push the change in the rules. And some of the men don't like, they don't want the rules to change. And we're gonna say, but they need to. And I think that's where we are. And that's where I think we'll find, you know, where we have the ability to contribute to, and like the flexibility I was talking about. To me, that's a big opportunity for us to change the rules. And I think we should all demand that this is a, a perfect point in time for us to try something new. Mm. I think that analogy as well is very good at highlighting the importance of language and being careful with the language that you use. I, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of, of being lazy sometimes with my descriptors and, and realizing later, sorry, that's my dog growling, if you can hear that, uh, uh, realizing later that actually that what I was saying was, was, was lazy and, and, and not, not that well-founded. And I think it's, it's so important to be aware of how you're talking about things and, and the impact that that can have in things like gender equality. Absolutely. And, you know, when we think about the whole notion of unconscious bias, it, it absolutely is the way the way I say it. And I think we have to be comfortable. And I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, the price of speaking up. I think we have to be OK about saying, you know, if you see something, say something. Or if you, you know, if someone is offended by the words we chose or if I am. And I know some people, you know, and especially the men who say, I don't even know what I can say anymore. I can't. I don't know if I can compliment someone. Like, I don't think we have to get so crazy that we can't be human anymore around you know relationships or the social side of what we do but i do think we should be able to challenge each other in a very professional and and this is where some of my conflict resolution work you know when i was working with nothing to do with insurance but everything to do with human behavior mm. it is okay to find a way to say something without having someone feel defensive and or you know and and making it so that it's not personal Mm. that it really is about the issue versus the person. And I yeah. think if we get better at that, we're going to make more progress as we try to, you know, kind of smooth out some of the, I think, the, the roughness that we're all feeling. And look, people bristle at change. And, and those that want to dig their heels in harder are going to be harder to win over. So we have to take a different approach because just continuing to beat the drum isn't going to, that's the part I think we're, we're tired of. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think an appreciation of why certain people might feel slightly reluctant and how it's seen from their perspective and an ability to empathize and rephrase or reframe what you're trying to ex explore and explain in a way that doesn't feel personal right. is, is a fantastic skill. And, and I, 
And I, I hope that we, we're all given an opportunity to spend time cultivating it because it's it's a difficult one as well. It is, it is. And I, that's why I think if we are committed to this quest of, of gender balance, then we need to be willing to speak up, but find ways to do it in a, in a you know, professional. And I always call it kind, you know, lead with compassion and just come from a, a place of humanity versus, you know, power or, mm. or control. To me, those are this. I think that's where we kind of get in into trouble. And women, look, I mean, that is not unique to men, right? I've seen women that have positions of power or 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 stature or position where they've been. There are women I refuse to work for because you know they just weren't nice. And it's like that that whole command and control side of management and or leadership. And that to me is you know. So I think we have to just come at it from more of a um, how do you want to be treated, right? Yeah. And and you know from that standpoint. So um, I have a lot of positive hope that we are at a I think a, a juncture at a really kind of a turning point. And I think COVID has really helped us kind of even if there wasn't even the playing field, this was it. Everybody had to work from home, right? Yeah. And so I think this is our time to rebuild it differently rather than just go back to what we were doing, because yeah. that's I think what most of us don't want. Absolutely. And I know I had one more question for you, but we're actually at time. And I think that is such an excellent place to end. It's hopeful. Um, so thank you so much, Jill, for coming, coming on and sharing about your career path and your takes on the industry. It's been, I've really enjoyed it and I'm sure everyone listening has as well. Um, so thank you so much. You. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in Derry. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks everyone. Bye.